Well, I want to welcome you to the Cato Institute uh, and apologize our slight delay. One of our speakers who was just getting here uh, had his flight delayed coming out of New York, so Bill's just going to join us in about a minute. Uh, but I'm going to get us started. Uh, I will be serving as the moderator today's panel as well as one of our panelists. One of the consequences of the financial crisis has been the increased concentration of our nation's mortgage market into government-controlled entities such as Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the Federal Housing Administration. Government entities currently shoulder almost 90% of the credit risk in our mortgage market, with the rescue of Fannie and Freddie already having cost the taxpayer over $180 billion and FHA teetering on the brink of insolvency, it is critical for policymakers to chart a path toward encouraging private market participants to bear that risk. Our panelists will examine obstacles and solutions for bringing private capital back into our mortgage market. Today's panel consists of Damon Silvers. Damon currently serves as the Director of Policy and Special Counsel for the AFL-CIO. Prior to working for the AFL-CIO, uh, Damon was a law clerk at the Delaware Court of Chancery. Damon also worked at Credit Suisse First Boston, the law firm Kravitz, Swine & Moore, and was a summer fellow in the Enforcement Division of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, he's also served in the Congressional Oversight Panel created to oversee the TARP. He received his JD with honors from Harvard Law as well as an MBA from Harvard Business School. Next on our panel will be William Fry, who after spending 15 years on Wall Street with such firms as Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, and Bear Stearns, founded Greenwich Financial Services, where he currently serves as the CEO. Some of his notable accomplishments uh, at Greenwich have been the first Russian securitization of auto loans in 2005, followed by in 2006 with the first MBS for Russian mortgage certificates. Um, Bill will remind us that neither one of these deals has suffered any credit losses throughout the financial crisis. Uh, Bill is also the author of Way Too Big to Fail, How Government and Private Industry Can Create a Fail-Safe Mortgage System. Bill has been generous to bring a few copies of the book that are outside, which you can grab afterwards. Uh, you might even notice a little blurb from me on the book, so I actually have read it uh, and greatly encourage the rest of you to do so. It really does lay out a clear path, uh, in my opinion, to try to reform our mortgage market. Uh, also joining our panel is Tomas Koskorki, who currently holds the Edward Gordon Associate Professor of Real Estate and Finance at Columbia Business School. In the last two years, in the last few years, Tomas has been one of the most active scholars in the field of mortgage design. His most recent piece on prepayment penalties, in my opinion, should be required reading for my friends over at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, that's if they could manage to get through the math. Tomas earned his PhD at NYU Stern Business, uh, Stern Business School at NYU. Uh, and since I assume he had as much fun working on his PhD as I did, he also earned a master's in math during that time at NYU's Cornell Institute for Mathematical Sciences. Uh, I want to thank each of our panelists, and of course thank you as the audience. Uh, as moderator, I'm going to exercise my privileges as actually going as the first panelist. I think I will be our only panelist to have a PowerPoint, however. Get this going. Hmm. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> I will wave my. There we go. See. It's kind of hard in Washington to talk about mortgage finance without talking about homeownership at some point. So much of the justification uh, for Freddie, Fannie, FHA, uh, certainly none of the justification is liquidity for the mortgage market, but a lot of it is homeownership's a great thing. We should subsidize it. We should have more of it. 
For instance, we often hear about homeownership correlating with lots of positive outcomes. Uh, children of homeowners have a more high, higher likelihood to go to college. Homeowners uh, are more likely to be able to tell you who their local representatives are, uh, and they're also likely to have correlates with wealth and a whole bunch of other things. Um, it's also worth noting that homeownership is not without its cost. Uh, for instance, there have been a number of studies that suggest that a higher a country's homeownership rate as well as a state's homeownership rate, the higher your structural unemployment. So you might have uh, rigidities in your labor market that come from homeownership. Uh, and of course, as a homeowner myself, uh, you, know, you have the regular repairs that come into it. So it, of course, uh, there are costs that come with homeownership. It's also important to keep in mind a lot of the studies that look at the positive outcomes of homeownership, in my opinion, look at the average homeowner. On average, homeowners, children are more likely to go to college, for instance. It's also it's very important to keep in mind that the marginal homeowner, that homeowner who's just on the edge of becoming a renter to homeowner, is likely not to be the same thing as the average homeowner. So the effects that we might find positive for average homeowners just might not hold for marginal homeowners. Uh, it's also important to keep in mind a lot of the externalities, that, that is the positive benefits locally assumed of homeownership, such as homeowners are known to better maintain uh, their residences. They'll often you know, maintain the street and keep an eye and they usually have less crime. It's important to keep in mind that most of these externalities are very local in nature. Uh, someone who's a homeowner in Des Moines might not necessarily be benefiting me in the same way that they benefit their neighbor across the street. Uh, so my point being there that it calls into question whether it should be federal subsidizing, whether the local control of it. Uh, and of course, one of the things that we hear in Washington, whether it's for infrastructure or housing or almost anything out of the sun, is the jobs that are going to be created, the economic impact to be created. Uh, of course, I would note that I think much of this is exaggerated by the fact that we all have to live somewhere. Uh, and if a construction crew builds a rental unit versus a homeowner unit for the same amount of space and such, it's the same amount of jobs, it's the same amount of economic impact. The fact that that unit's tenure might be homeowner versus renter seems to have very little impact on actual economic outcomes. So again, some of these things are exaggerated, but we hear them quite often as rationales for subsidy. I want to talk a little bit about the trend and what we've seen in terms of how we subsidize homeownership. And what the chart you're looking at shows is a 10-year from 1940 breakdown of the market share for Freddie and Fannie versus the homeownership rate. Uh, and what you can really see there, I think, readily apparent is by 1960, we largely got to the homeownership rate we have today. Uh, and despite the very large expansion of the GSEs, the homeownership rate long-term needle has not moved much at all. Uh, and then I think another thing illustrated by the chart to keep in mind is despite the fact that Fannie Mae was founded in uh, 1934, up until after the SNL crisis, its market share was in the single digits. So again, the GSEs were largely something whose dominance came after the SNL crisis. We had decades where we had a depository system that funded this without the GSEs. Um, another factor which I uh, illustrate from the same sort of charts is that despite this sort of stickiness in homeownership rates since 1960, all the additional leverage in the financial system, the darker bar you're seeing here is the average loan to value, the average uh, sort of value that the homeowner has, the average debt. And what you've seen is this trend where we've had increasing leverage of homeowners. Uh, so in a sense, we've encouraged homeowners to take considerably more debt uh, without, without actually long-term increases in homeownership that come from that increase in debt. So maybe an, uh, one of the things I would take away from consideration here in the question we should have is, Perhaps more of our housing market should be equity funded, both on the part of the homeowner as well as the financial institution, rather than simply debt funded. 
one of, I think, the rationales for the rescue of Freddie and Fannie were not as much economic concerns as much as they were foreign policy concerns. Much of the holdings of Freddie and Fannie during the boom were held by foreign central banks, such as the Chinese, Japanese, Russian central banks. Uh, and the point I'm making here is the showing of both private and government holdings. The government expansion of foreign government holdings of GSE debt really did not start to occur in mass until 2005, 2006. So the question of whether we need these large guarantees so that foreign central banks will buy our mortgage debt, um, th at the end of the day, I'm not quite convinced that we need the rest of the world to fund our mortgage market and whether we should be able to do it ourselves, which again calls into question whether we need those guarantees. Um, another thing, I, I issue to sort of think about is to go back and think about why the GSEs, in, in my opinion, were created in the first place. In the 1930s, we saw the creation of the Federal Home Loan Banks and Fannie Mae and FHA and a number of things. I would argue to a very large degree what these uh, interventions were meant to solve were liquidity problems with a very fragmented banking system. Uh, in 1935, we had over 14,000 banks. Most of them did not even have branches. The vast majority of them were single locations. You might even remember into the 90s in Texas, still you could only have a single location for banks. So of course, this made banking very fragile, very vulnerable to local economic conditions, so that if you had a shortage of funds in one area but an excess in another, those funds could not flow. Uh, and of course, this also made banks very vulnerable to a single business going out of it. So you could imagine a small town where there's one employer who dominates. Uh, if that employer goes out of business, you can be sure the local bank will go out of business too. Well, for good or bad, and it's uh, interesting that it's the uh, last couple of days, uh, the debates about breaking up the banks have come back into, in, into fashion. Um, our banking system looks much different today. I would still, it's still less, uh, less concentrated than many other banking systems around the world, but I would say we've gone a considerable distance to solving the issue of lack of geographic diversification that was a real threat to our banking system in the 30s. Uh, and it's also important to keep in mind one of the arguments one often hears for keeping Fannie and Freddie is who will buy mortgages if they do not. Uh, I would uh, put out there that we have at least two lenders of last resort. The Federal Reserve, as you know, bought over a trillion dollars in mortgage-backed securities during the crisis. They have certainly set a precedent for intervening in the mortgage market. I'll also note that the uh, European Central Bank bought five to six hundred billion dollars, billion euros, rather, in covered bonds. So there's certainly a lot of intervention by central banks. Whether that's good or bad is a different debate, but it is there. And of course, the federal home loan banks have long been a lender of last resort for mortgage lenders. So the argument that we need to have a subsidized lender of last resort in the Freddie and Fannie, I don't think stands up to much scrutiny, given there are other, other uh, borrowers there, other buyers there at the end of the day. Uh, of course, one of the arguments, and I think this is going to be a heart of what we're going to talk about today, uh, is if not the GSEs, who funds our mortgage market? First, I want to start out with, and this echoes back to my earlier chart, about the increase in leverage on the part of households is, it's not, in my opinion, such a $10 trillion question, which is, of course, the size of our current market, but more of a $7 trillion question, uh, which is about the size of the mortgage market in about 2003. Uh, so I would argue we don't want to have somebody fund, at least today, our entire mortgage market. We want to see reduced debt and more increased equity should be part of it. Uh, I would also note that we don't need to have a big bang transition. Estimates of originations for 2012 will be about a trillion in mortgages. So again, the question is not how do we place 10 trillion or 7 trillion, uh, it's how do we transition over time to moving the GSE activity to somebody else. And of course, uh, you know, much of the promise of a securitization model was that you would connect households needing money with retail investors who would invest and buy those mortgage-backed securities. The reality turned out to be quite different. 
uh, about four-fifths of the funding for Freddie and Fannie at the height of the crisis were simply other actors in the financial system. Uh, the banks, pension funds, mutual funds, uh, even REITs held GSE debt that largely constituted the other funding. So I would argue that where the funding could come from Freddie and Fannie, would replace Freddie and Fannie, would be those who actually funded Freddie and Fannie. Uh, and it's also worth noting that almost all of these entities who held Freddie and Fannie debt, who financed them, are subject to much higher capital standards than Freddie and Fannie. By my back of the envelope, the fact that Freddie and Fannie were held, held these mortgages rather than banks reduced the capital in our financial system by about $400 billion. So, you know, we might have been able to completely do without the TARP if we had simply held these assets on the balance sheets of banks rather than on Freddie and Fannie. Uh, it's also important to keep in mind that the concentration of GSE risk in our financial sector is another reason for the bailout. Uh, this is the most recent, uh, well, 2010 data. If you go back and look at 2005 data during the crisis, you see similar, actually a higher concentration where GSE debt and obligations represented over 150% of tier one capital for our banking system. Uh, a number of banks had to go to the TARP and, were, and, and failed because of losses on their preferred shares. Uh, I always find it interesting that when you know, people complain about J.P. Morgan's loss on their uh, whale, they seem to not mind that J.P. Morgan lost a billion dollars on its Freddie and Fannie preferreds. Uh, and of course, J.P. Morgan lost about four billion uh, on, the bail, on the auto bailouts. So of course, you know, there are other sources of systemic risk in the financial sector other than just simply derivative bets. Uh, and of course, our entire banking system is basically built on GSE securities. So what, again, trying to remove that concentration of risk out of our banking system, I think will make a more stable system. So getting to the argument that I'm, gonna, that I'm making today is that uh, I think the future of our mortgage system should look a little bit like the past, which is a deposit-based mortgage system, uh, worth recognizing that most of the developed world is actually deposit-based. Uh, I think it also reduces questions about asymmetric information that I know Tomas is going to talk about a little bit and is written on uh, in terms of that you have in the securitization process where I pass along an asset to you although I've originated it. Uh, if you have to hold that, there's some extent to which you're going to reduce the information problems there. And of course, much of securitization was driven by the capital standards uh, in the banking system that encouraged banks. Uh, you know, for instance, a lot of what you saw would have essentially be Bank of America take a thousand uh, mortgages, sell to Fannie, buy back the MBS of those thousand mortgages, and in the process be able to cut their capital in half. Uh, so of course, uh, to some extent, we need to be concerned about a system that encourages the risk to flow to the least, the least capitalized institutions. Uh, I would also argue that to a large extent, some of our foreclosure problems uh, and loss mitigation problems are because of the securitization uh, if essentially in a, in a sort of Jimmy Stewart savings and loan world, if a in depository holds that loan, they're much more able to deal with and know the circumstances of a particular borrower uh, and deal with loss mitigation in a much easier way. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think we've somewhat solved the, the geographic diversity problem. Uh, and of course, one of the, even more importantly, deposits, even uninsured, tend to be sticky. Um, we did not see bank runs uh, in the, you know, during the financial crisis. And in fact, throughout the financial crisis, insured deposits at uh, commercial banks increased. You know, of course, much of that came from the mutual fund industry uh, and other sources, but the point is, is that a deposits tend to be a sticky source of funds that don't run as much. And so uh, I think having that funded in that avenue versus funded in the repo market or in other avenues is far more stable. 
I think it's also worth looking at uh, other sectors that perform similarly to housing during the crisis but have, but have recovered better. Uh, and quite frankly, I think the best comparison that I can think of is with the auto industry. You certainly saw a very large decline. Uh, and what you're looking at here is um, truck sales, uh, light, light and truck sales, light vehicle sales. And this followed the housing sector down. The blue line is the auto industry. The, the red line is the housing industry. Followed the housing industry down. The big bump there is, of course, when we did the cash for clunkers. But even despite that, you've seen a recovery in the auto industry that you've not seen in the housing industry. And I think, correspondingly, one of the reasons for that and what we're seeing here uh, is a comparison of revolving credit, including auto loans, with mortgages. Uh, and so, again, we've seen the auto loan uh, basically come back, and even today you can get a subprime auto loan, whereas you cannot get a subprime mortgage. Um, so some of the things I would keep in mind in trying to compare the auto loans, and obviously uh, not all of these comparisons are perfect, but again, you can get an auto loan at a regulatory affordable rate. You can get them for a relatively fixed term, as much as seven years. Uh, and to some extent, even though during the pre-crisis the auto market was heavily dependent on ABS, some of that channel has come back. Uh, you could also, importantly, get an auto loan with a relatively high loan-to-value. In fact, I would argue that most auto loans are underwater about the second you drive off a lot. Um, but, of course, there are other uh, elements there, such as the ability to actually collect. For instance, if you do not pay in your car loan, generally someone's going to come and take that car away from you. Uh, whereas in the mortgage market, you, we have seen borrowers stay in their home for excess of two years on average before being foreclosed upon. So there are other factors, I think, that need to be taken into account. But again, one of the arguments I would make is we should try to be, at the end of the day, making our mortgage market look a lot more like our auto loan market. Uh, I want to wrap up with a, little, with a couple of points, and some of this is reflected by my years as staff on the Banking Committee. Uh, you have to take politics into account of this and how these things are going to be run. If we set up a system, whether it's a continuation of something like Freddie and Fannie or something like uh, the mortgage bankers of the financial roundtable has talked about in terms of guaranteeing mortgage-backed securities, I am absolutely convinced on having worked on a number of insurance programs, they will all be underpriced. Uh, and so, again, you need to take into consideration that even if we are trying to price that uh, risk in the mortgage market, the government does not have a very good uh, track record at pricing. Uh, it's also important to keep in mind that a government guarantee system subject to politics will likely be pro-cyclical. Uh, I think about this in terms of democracy loves a bubble. Uh, I certainly think one of the factors behind the crisis um, was that legislators reflecting essentially the sentiment of the public loved the housing bubble when it was happening and, and certainly uh, let that be known to regulators who within their discretion were not willing to offset or be a counter-cyclical measure. So again, I'm pretty much convinced, and, and you know, you can think about things during the top of the bubble when the last administration proposed that you know, we should get rid of down payments, for instance, for FHA, because obviously down payments were keeping people out of the housing market. So again, I think it's pretty safe to say that during every bubble, the response of politicians were not to be to prick the bubble, but the response will be, how do we get more people into the bubble? Uh, which of course will make it actually worse. Um, it's also important to keep in mind that all federal insurance is essentially cash flow. That money will be spent. There is no lockbox. Uh, at worst, it will be put in treasuries, which the proceeds from the treasuries will be spent. So again, it's important to keep in mind that even having a federal insurance program uh, will not mean that there will be any sort of real reserves there. Uh, and of course, I think the bigger problem going forward is that as we see funding pressures on the overall federal government continue in the years ahead, my sense is that this will make contingent liabilities all the more attractive for politicians. 
Obviously, one of the massive benefits to the political process from Freddie and Fannie was the continued uh, claim that it cost the taxpayer nothing. Uh, and for years, even with FHA, it was claimed it was actually treated on the budget as if it generated money. So, uh, you know, again, I think that we need to sever this political tie between our mortgage finance system and politics because the pressures are just too high, in my opinion, to be able to use these entities for off-budget purposes. So uh, a couple things I would will end with is that some, some points is that I really don't think one of the one of the things we lost is this combining of competition and guarantees. I'm somebody who thinks competition is a great thing, but I also think that if you have tremendous competition between entities that have the extensive safety net, you guarantee that that safety net will be called upon. And so you can have one or the other. Uh, my druthers is to have competition without the guarantees, but I think you recognize you cannot mix the two. Uh, I think we also have to recognize that the housing and business cycle is not dead. Uh, you know, and, and, and I, that seems obvious now, but it seemed a few years ago that everybody was convinced we had cured that. Uh, so I think one needs to be careful and one needs to keep in mind we will have additional housing booms and busts in this country. Uh, I think we can try to moderate them and make them less, but we will have them again and we should build a mortgage finance system that plans for the next housing bubble and bust rather than pretends it's going to be steady. Uh, and of course, I, I, would, I would argue that if you're going, the, the reason that I prefer competition without the guarantees, since I don't think they mix, is because I think the government regulation is insufficient to control moral hazard. Uh, I think the incentives will always be there, both on the part of the regulator. Let's keep in mind that regulatory agencies face pretty weak incentives. And so one of the objectives I think we should have is to replace what I say is weak incentives, such as you are monitoring or examining an institution, they fail, you keep your job. Uh, of course, I could say maybe the worst example of this in my mind is there's probably no institution that fell down on its face more than the New York Federal Reserve, and the president of the New York Federal Reserve, rather than being disciplined, was given a promotion. I think that's probably a pretty bad incentive to send, signal to send out to the marketplace or uh, regulators in general. Um, and of course, try, we've got some investors here at the table. To me, investors who have their own money at risk provide the ultimate incentive and have much stronger incentives. So again, part of the objective here should be replacing weak incentives with strong incentives. And of course, there will be continue to be political pressure, as I mentioned about democracy, love, and a bubble. It's also important to keep in mind, here is the five-year change in real house prices. Uh, housing is actually quite risky, despite what might be said otherwise and thought before the crisis. And I think it will continue to be particularly as leveraged as it is. So ending a little bit with some policy principles in my mind that we should keep in terms of structuring the next system, there should be no capital arbitrage. If you hold a mortgage, whoever you are, if you're backed by the government, you should hold the same capital. Um, and I think we should get away from credit allocation, no special status for housing versus other industries. Uh, and of course, the risk bearing should be transparent. I think the American public has a, a right to know what they're on the hook for. So that means no contingent liabilities. Uh, and of course, I don't think finance should be a tool for redistribution of wealth or income. If you want to transfer wealth, do it on budget, do it appropriated, do it transparently. Uh, so again, we already have a backstop, the Fed. Uh, I think that backstop is just as likely to create a crisis as avoid one. Uh, one thing to keep in mind that uh, your mortgage finance system is only going to be as good as your monetary policy, uh, and we can certainly get in that in a discussion, but I think uh, both the savings and loan crisis and the recent crisis illustrate that bad monetary policy can cause you all sorts of problems. It's also important to keep in mind that political systems itself is a, is a source of systemic risk. But lastly, I leave you with the thought that I believe there's sufficient private funds to fund our mortgage market without a guarantee. And with that, let me click out of here and turn the podium over to Damon. Okay. You want me to? Uh, I'm, I'm sort of more 
I'm sort of more comfortable sitting down if that's that's all right with everybody. Um, good uh, good afternoon, I guess. I, um, first, I want to say that uh, it's a real pleasure to be at Cato to discuss these matters because one of the things that that I learned over the course of the financial crisis in various roles is that there are certain issues associated with our financial system where people of principle, it doesn't really matter what principles, uh, agree. Uh, that, that there are some propositions that you just can't really stand by, uh, whether you have the sorts of principles people have at the Cato Institute or the sorts of principles one has that my, me and my colleagues have at the AFL-CIO. One of those ideas is the notion that um, we ought to shovel money at folks who failed and ask nothing of them in return. Uh, that 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 is a that that's a proposition that just, just doesn't wash uh, in 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 any uh, in 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 any set of principles that I know of. So uh, this is a setting where I think it's possible to have a conversation that recognizes certain certain common a certain common understandings and b certain common uh, maybe commonsensical notions uh, of what uh, we ought to expect of each other in the public policy arena. Now that being said, um, I've been asked to talk about the role of uh, pension funds in particular uh, in, the, uh, in the housing finance market, and in particular within that in the uh, private label mortgage-backed securities market. Now, before I do that, I want, to, I want to say a couple of things about the history of these markets uh, and both the distant history and the recent history uh, that I think are critical to understanding what are the issues in play here. And you've heard some of the issues you know, from Mark, and I want to sort of supplement that in a little, a little bit. Um, I do want to say one thing in terms of uh, sort of, you know, finding common ground here that I think is very important, uh, that in, in case it gets lost in the shuffle, I would want to say it now, I'll say it again later, which is the point that Mark made, that you want to do one or the other. Right? You, want to, you, don't, you want to have uh, uh, sort of market-based competition, essentially, with winners and losers, uh, or you want to have public institutions with public governance. And that the idea that you basically set up public, public institutions with guarantees and then put them into a market dynamic with private sector style corporate governance and executive compensation is a recipe for immediate disaster. Right? You, you kind of, in, in, in this space in particular, you kind of need to go one way or the other. And I think we just learned a very painful lesson in that, in that respect. Now, two pieces of history. The origins of the, the we have we had in the United States in the post-war era a highly structured system of mortgage finance, and it was not quite the same as the system we saw in place during the ten or so years preceding the 2008 bubble. But it was some there was some continuity between them. That system was set up uh, federal home loan bank boards, the original Fannie Mae, which was a government-controlled ent entity, uh, not a sort of quasi-privatized whatever. Uh, the uh, Glass-Steagall Act uh, and the like, that system uh, was set up to facilitate uh, American families buying their homes under, with 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. That was the purpose of that system. Why was that system set up to do that? Prior to the creation of the system during the New Deal, housing finance, uh, like auto loans, for example, was relatively short-term. The typical loan one would get from a bank for a home might be five years, and then you'd have to roll it over. Uh, by the way, not unlike, uh, not, just, uh, not unlike some of what you see in commercial real estate, but even a little shorter than typical commercial real estate terms. The reason for this is because uh, of the mismatch uh, in, in duration between, uh, 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 between uh, home, <coughs> home loans 
uh, and the kinds of cash flows necessary for people to be able to afford home loans, uh, and uh, deposits in banks. The problem with this system was that it, when housing prices began to fall, no one could refinance their loans. Right? And, there, and, there was no and, and no one had any ability to wait it out. And so uh, mass home foreclosures uh, became an accelerating factor uh, in the Great Depression. This, this tells us one thing and one, and one very important thing about this question, which is that you want to have a system that, that, that manages this, this timing mismatch, this time horizons mismatch, uh, so that you're not in a position where your entire housing finance system collapses if there is an economic downturn. All right, we moved in a dramatic way, kind of sort of helter-skelter, willy-nilly, uh, in, the, in the direction of that very kind of system uh, as a result of the rise both of the subprime market with the, two, with the, uh, with the reset after two years, which is effectively that system, because right? the sub subprime loans reset to le levels no one could pay, which essentially meant that you were supposed to refinance at two years. We also moved in that way on a much longer term basis at the higher end of the market and, and in certain higher end of the market in terms of values across the board and geographically in terms of places like California with very high prices in relation to incomes. And that move was very long term. That move had been going on since the 1970s. But what this tells us about the future is that we've got to have a solution to this problem. Otherwise, you have a fundamentally unstable financial system. Se second point. And this is a, this is a point uh, about the way in which the financial crisis evolved, and it tells us something very profound about this notion of either you want private institutions or you want public institutions. You don't want hybrids. And that is the interaction between the, the private label mortgage-backed securities markets and the GSEs in the run-up to the financial crisis. Now, this has been misrepresented. I would think it's fair to say by people uh, in both political parties and of all ideological persuasions for a variety of reasons. But the truth of this matter is, quite, is that it went like this. There was, uh, Fannie and Freddie were not in the subprime uh, uh, securitization business as the bubble got going in 2003 and 2004. That business was largely a privately securitized business by, pri by, by investment banks uh, in the private label MBS market. That market began to take market share from Fannie and Freddie Fannie and Freddie, run by people who were being incented uh, as private actors, began to look at their market share and their, uh, their values of their stock fall and said, we've got to do something. I'm, you know, like good businessmen, they said, we've got to do something. We've got to get, to get our market share back, got to get our stock price up so that my paycheck gets bigger. What they did rather late in the game uh, was not securitize uh, subprime MBS, what they did was buy other people's securitized MBS. And so this is a story right, of credit quality standards and consumer protections collapsing in a private market, then uh, with the active aiding and abetting of the regulators, and then, a and then this kind of hybrid public-private institution, Fannie and Freddie, uh, following in its wake using exactly the incentives that were, it was set up to have behave, if anyone thought about it, exactly as one would have expected them to behave under those incentives, uh, and, and chasing uh, the private label folks you know, d d down the drain. Uh, now, as you can tell, this is not, a present, it's not a pretty story from those who would say that Fannie and Freddie had nothing to do with the crisis. It's also not 
a story that supports the notion that Fannie and Freddie caused the crisis or were fundamentally unstable in the long run as long as they stayed in their, in their lane of what they were supposed to be doing, which was uh, securitizing 30-year fixed mortgages uh, under, un, under you know, fairly strict underwriting standards. Now, where does that leave us? We, looking at this from the perspective of, of workers' pension funds, one of the fascinating things about the current moment is that it's very hard to figure out exactly what workers' pension funds hold uh, in the mortgage-backed securities market. I, I was challenged to do so for this panel. I confess I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, there are some data. Uh, the data is not really consistent with our anecdotal understanding of what's going on, and has been largely compiled by people with, shall we say, an interest in cutting the data certain ways, like uh, SIFMA. Um, SIFMA says that 29% of private label residential mortgage-backed securities are held by pensions and insurance companies. Now, maybe that's true. Um, what the split is between pensions and insurance companies, is, I don't know. But there's also a very important thing buried underneath there, which is are they held directly or indirectly through hedge funds? Our, our anecdotal sense of this is, is that today, the worker pension funds that we are familiar with do not hold significant amounts of private label mortgage-backed securities other than through their investments in, in hedge funds, which after all are significant. But we don't, know, we don't have any data that looks through that lens with any, with any degree of precision. Our, the holdings of pension funds in, in GSEs are quite significant and continue to be so. I'll give you an example of one, one data point, which is CalPERS, which is the largest pension fund uh, uh, that uh, union members belong to in the United States. CalPERS uh, portfolio is 5% mortgage-backed securities of all kinds. But that doesn't tell. But that doesn't reflect what the underlying holdings of, say, of Calpers's hedge fund portfolios are. Uh, it's not going to be enough to to make the the right answer a multiple of five percent. Now, this distinction is important because pension funds hold mortgage-backed securities and hedge funds for very different reasons. Mortgage-backed securities are part of generally fixed income portfolios. Are designed to produce. They're designed to generate stable. Uh, rates of return at relatively low levels of volatility. And GSEs in particular had characteristics of that type for many decades prior to the crisis. And in fact, uh, uh, GSE debt as opposed to GSE equity has maintained those characteristics. Not surprisingly because it has a government guarantee, now an explicit one. Pension funds hold hedge funds for very different reasons. Uh, and, and for multiple reasons. Hedge funds, depending on the strategy, are held for all sorts of different purposes, but in general, they involve greater degrees uh, of risk, volatility, and return uh, than mortgage-backed securities. Now, what you see, therefore, is the transition of an asset, a mortgage-backed security, a private label mortgage-backed security, which is the subject of this conversation, the transition of that asset from what it originally was supposed to be, which was a relatively uh, uh, low-risk, low-volatility uh, source of cash flow, uh, into a, a speculative investment, investment very much like uh, uh, junk bonds or, or, uh, or equities, or, which is you know, managed through using a lot of leverage uh, and through a number of highly paid asset management intermediaries. What would we need to do if, just assume for the moment, that we wanted private label mortgage-backed securities to become more the sort of investment that they were originally marketed as? relatively low risk, 
uh, low volatility, stable uh, cash flow types of investments. Well, the first thing you need to do was persuade pension funds uh, and their money managers uh, when, they, you know, when they're not in Washington talking in forums, but when they're actually making decisions about money, uh, which is when you've got to keep an eye on the, there's a big difference between those two things. You'd have to persuade them uh, that this was, shall we say, a, at minimum, a marketplace with known, as, as was famously said a few years ago in this town, known unknowns, <laughs> as opposed to a marketplace with unknown unknowns, meaning risks that can't be quantified, measured, assessed, managed. You look at, you look at episodes in the private label mortgage markets like the uh, question of who actually holds the mortgage, which is unfolding now in the courts everywhere, that's what you call an, an unknown unknown, right? that you've bought a mortgage-backed security and maybe it doesn't actually have the mortgage. Um, secondly, and I think this is probably something that really um, speaks right to the heart of some of my fellow panelists, you've got to believe that people are kind of telling you the truth about what's going on underneath the, 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 the portfolios, right? that the accountants aren't lying to you, that the accounting standards haven't been cooked, uh, that you are not the um, that you are not the kind of the mark in a con game called extend and pretend. And at the moment, I think when the door is closed, most people who have who look at this business assess it more or less like that, right? And so it's interwoven with the with our continuing need to clean up the the mess left by the 2008 financial crisis, which in my opinion is not fully cleaned up uh, by a long shot. And I think it's unlikely that funds will, will enter into, into the private label mortgage-backed securities markets until some of these, some of these issues are settled. Now, now unfortunately, we're, we're going on, what now, about five years, six years, depending on when you, when you start the clock. Uh, and um, I, I'm not optimistic that the kinds of moves that need to be made in terms of the banking system or the mortgage-backed securities markets are likely to be made anytime soon. The, um, but let's assume for the moment, make the heroic assumption that those moves were in fact made uh, and that uh, there was kind of a what you see is what you get, a, a basis for believing that what you see is what you get in the private label residential mortgage-backed securities markets. Now, if that, were to, if, that, if that were to be the case, what else would need to happen? And there, I think you really have a question of what actual, how, how big a market do you want that market to be? And if you want that market, the private label market, to kind of look like the private label market looked like pre-bubble. Right? And Mark talked about you know, the notion that we want to go kind of back to pre-bubble markets. We want that market to look like it looked pre-bubble. What was it? Well, it was the jumbo market. Right? And it was non-conforming loans, which uh, included subprime non-conforming loans for reasons other than not being jumbo. That market, while significant for the, for the wealthy among us and for the poor among us, was nowhere near the size of what the conforming loan market was. Now, I think it is relatively, it is relatively conceivable to imagine a world in which that type of market returns against the backdrop of a different market for the majority of loans that are that are sort of in the conforming place. But if you wanted to, if you wanted, when you come back to what both Mark and I said about dichotomies, about, you know, on the, you gotta do it one way or the other way. If you wanted to take the Cato type way, the, the, the uh, you know, the no, the no support, the no, the no public support route, 
then you'd have to be pretty sure, for the reasons that I began with, that you had a system for managing, that you had a system that was robust enough and big enough for managing tail risk uh, and for managing the duration mismatch between funding sources uh, and, and, and long-term mortgage lending. That type of system has not existed in the past. And we would also have to recognize that if we put that together, and I think this is absolutely sort of where like there are some things that you just can't escape in terms of numbers and economics, you gotta pay for it, right? Homeowners would, homeowners would have to pay for the, uh, for the insurance mechanisms that would sort of be underlying those markets. And it would raise the cost of housing. Now, where that brings us back to is what, is what Mark concluded with, which is like there's realities in American politics, there's realities about how Washington works. And I'm, I'm, I'm tr it's tragic to admit this, but I can now been here in Washington long enough that I have to admit that I know something about these dynamics. <laughs> and I agree with Mark that there were, some th there were some things that, you know, it's like the end of, it's like what Hemingway said, at the end of the sun also rises. You know, isn't it pretty to think so? Right? The idea, I believe, that we're going to unplug our public policy process from the mortgage markets, I think, is an isn't it pretty to think so idea. And so what I would, what, I, what my belief about this is, is, is that we should not, under any circumstances, recreate a dynamic where you have public guarantees with private sector style corporate governance on top of them. And I don't care whether you call it Fannie and Freddie or you call it something that is some consortium of big banks that actually has that behind it. I think under no circumstances should we do that. I think I, I, what I think we should do instead is kind of where we came in, which is, if we're, which is that we should admit that there is going to be public support in one fashion or another for the, for the various kinds of tail risks and mismatches associated with long-term finance and that that public support should be in the open, it should be, it should be transparently funded, and it should be governed publicly. It should not be governed by people who have uh, stock options, two and 20 deals, uh, um, the sorts of arrangements one sees at the boards of the major banks. That is not an appropriate set, set of arrangements to hand over those types of public subsidies and public guarantees to. I think that, but I think that finally that I should say that pension funds, because again, this is my mandate to talk about pension funds. Pension funds would like to buy uh, long-term cash-generating, low, low volatility assets um, that maybe are a little tiny bit better than treasuries. Right? There's, a, there's a big appetite for that. And so it's not that pension funds are adverse to buying private label mortgage-backed securities or, or agencies, for that matter. They're buying agencies now. I mean, they're buying them, uh, you know, because they're the best they can do of the kind of thing I just described. The spread, of course, is narrowed because, because they have an explicit guarantee. Uh, but they're not going to leap into markets that are, fund I think, that are fundamentally, um, you know, not what you see is what you get. Uh, which I think is more or less what the private label uh, mortgage-backed securities market looks like today. And I'll, I'll stop there. Well, thank there you, Damon. Market <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, market, yeah. Bill reminds me that I'm being kind. Yeah. Right, that that there, isn't, there isn't actually a market. Train wreck, right. Yeah. right. yeah, exactly. Bill, it's, uh, okay. Um, I've been asked to talk a little bit about um, the Russian mortgage market, which may seem like something that's totally irrelevant, but... <clears throat> if you look back at the Russian situation, in 1991, they privatized all of their homes, similar to 
the the land grants and the the deals with you know 40 acres and a horse and all this kind of stuff back 150 years ago here um, when we did that we created a deed recording system so that we could keep track of this um, and for the most part it worked up until MERS and uh, the Russians and basically throughout Eastern Europe had the opportunity to put in a very modern deed recording system and they did they did with the help of um, uh, the World Bank with the help of, of our government uh, there were a, a host of, of, of agencies and organizations over there that um, helped them create basically a world-class deed recording system which we don't really hear about um, and in order to do mortgage-backed securities and get private money flowing into the market that's the, the, the first thing you need. You need to know that if you're going to take a lien on a property, that it's unambiguous that you have the lien. And I would think it's hard to imagine that we could come up with a system to do that with competing private entities and things like that. I, and, and, and Mark may disagree with me, but I, I, I would feel comfortable if there was a recognized central recording of, of liens and deeds. Um, which we do not have. Um, on the foreclosure front, um, when the before I did the first uh, MBS deal in Russia, they had to change their foreclosure laws. They had Soviet-era foreclosure laws for post-Soviet-era times. And it was rather amusing to look at their foreclosure laws because you were allowed to foreclose on a property if you had a lien on it, provided you gave the person you were evicting comparable space. So you could make a loan on apartment 4A, and if they didn't pay, you could foreclose on apartment 4B, 4A, but you have to give them 4B. Um, for pretty obvious reasons, that didn't work. And they swung the other direction, and um, they went and, and you could foreclose in as little as six hours with no preconditions of elderly servicemen, little girls with teddy bears. And they were really quite proud of this. And there's some humorous stories with rating agencies where people did not want to hear of kids going to school in the morning and coming back and having their teddy bear in the mud. But they, they have a, a foreclosure process that is very, very quick and very efficient. Um, and they also have access to the courts. Um, the foreclosures and when there is a conflict, you can have access to the courts over there. And as I sold the Russian deals, there were three questions I was asked by investors, and they were all investors that bought U.S. mortgage-backed securities. Is there good deed recording? Is there, um, can I foreclose if I don't get paid? And do I have access to the courts in a reasonably expeditious manner? And the answer in Russia was, we think so. And they were able to buy, I was able to sell these transactions under the belief that they had that. If you look at the US today, we have neither a deed recording system, we cannot foreclose in a timely manner, we may not even be able to foreclose, and the investors do not have access to the courts. So in this country, we're 0 for 3. And if you look at the amount of private capital that's in the mortgage industry right now, the new capital flowing in, it's about 1%. Which, if you think about it, that means there's 99% that's Fannie, Freddie, FHA, and various government programs. Um, that may seem okay, um, 
as long as you think that that's sustainable, which I don't really believe it is. Um, so until we address those very, very fundamental questions, which is how do we have a deed recording system? How do we have a foreclosure law that works? And how do we have investors have access to the courts? And by that, I also include no political meddling. Um, I cannot imagine that this market will come back. And as a, an interesting aside, I've been getting requests from investors in Europe and in the US to bring more Russian mortgage-backed deals, private mortgage-backed deals with no government backing. If you think about that, I'm getting requests for Russian deals, and I'm not getting requests for American deals. The structure of the underlying security in Russia was different. We took out, when I created the deals, I took out many of the internal conflicts of interest. The trustee's job is much more defined. The waterfalls are much more defined, and the, the moral hazards have been taken out. But the bottom line is that the investors have proven when they go to foreclose, they can foreclose in a couple of months. When the, um, if the trustee has to act, it appears that the trustee will act. We haven't had that situation. We haven't had to remove servicing or anything like that yet. Um, and the deed recording has been absolutely unambiguously successful. And if you look at the, the basics of what you need to get private capital, you need to make sure you can go to, go to the courts, get your money back if someone doesn't pay you. And you can't do that over here right now. And that's the fundamental problem in the US. If we look at the governmental response to this crisis and to the investors not acting, and ultimately the investors, it's the investors' responsibility to act and resolve this problem. The investors are dis dispersed and diffused, and in order to have legal standing, you need 25% of the investors to get together. So that there's, the, the idea behind that was that you don't have one or 2% or a small investor green mailing a trust. Um, this has proven to be a very, very high obstacle. I tried in 2008 to sue Countrywide on a class basis. The logic being, if I were certified as a class, I'd have 100% and then I'd be, be over the 25% hurdle. And there would then be a fiduciary operating on behalf of the investors so that the investors would have their day in court. Um, I lost that on the procedural decision of, do they ask the 25% question first and then the class action, or do they ask the class action first and then the 25%? We tried that, it went around the federal courts and the appeals courts and on and on and on. The bottom line is the investors have to act and they, the, the reality is they have not acted. Um, I believe it's, it's mainly because they're politically conflicted, they're economically conflicted, conflicted and they're politically scared. But the governmental response to the inaction started with, um, and I could just I, rattle off a handful of these things, in, 2008, there were 13 attorney generals that settled with Countrywide on an $8.5 billion suit. Well, this was great. They were going to mark down mortgages and write them down and things like that. The problem was Countrywide didn't own those mortgages. So Countrywide was paying their fine with someone else's money. And in addition to that, Countrywide was propping up other assets on their balance sheet, mainly their second liens and their credit cards, by writing down the, the senior obligations. Um, at that time, I do not believe any of the attorney generals understood the dynamics of the, the um, mortgage-backed securities market. Then they went for Hope for Homeowners, which was a complete failure. 
HAMP, which was designed to force the write-down or subsidize the write-down of loans, and it was paying the banks to subsidize the write-down of investor loans. Um, much of those write-downs were done extra-contractually. Um, then there was a second attorney general settlement, which was a, a bellwether in that the attorney generals this time realized that they can get paid by the banks. And so 49 attorney generals took a big hunk of $5 billion to settle the robo-signer scandal and let the banks write down investor loans again. Um, and the last one is eminent domain, which is something that's been being kicked around now for a, about two weeks in the public domain, um, where San Bernardino is fixing to go in and grab the assets of various trusts. There's 6,000 MBS trusts, and um, San Bernardino does not have more than 1% in any of the trusts. So they're a de minimis portion of the trust. And the investors would have to get 25% and instruct the trustee to complain about it. Otherwise, the price will be set unilaterally. So if you can't picture a problem with San Bernardino, by the way, getting paid $10,000 a loan to user eminent domain by a broker, um, taking over performing loans, writing them down, and not having the price that they pay be a subject of negotiation because the investors don't have the ability to access the courts. Um, if you can't see a problem with that situation, then, then, then I, 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 I find that to be self-evident. But I'm working with a bunch of European investors and some US investors on ways to mitigate their losses. And it comes around to the government is meddling and trying to shift losses onto investors that rightfully belong on the banks or rightfully belong with the homeowners. And, um, and the reason for that is they're not organized. And it's just that simple. But it goes back to the, fun, the three things that you must have to have private capital come into a market. And I was asked this by literally every single investor I spoke to. Deed recording, we fail. Foreclosure, we fail. And access to the courts, we fail. And therefore, we fail in, in terms of accessing private capital. It's just that simple. Thank, thank you, Bill. Um, uh, thanks, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I just want to say first that I largely agree with a lot of points that has been made here, so maybe my job is kind of hard. But uh, I'd like to bring a little bit an academic perspective in the sense we as academics, uh, we have a luxury to be independent. We don't paid by anybody but except our students and, uh, and uh, um, donors and so on. So uh, what we spent a couple of recent years at Columbia Business School, we built a fairly significant real estate center. And part of this was acquiring a lot of proprietary data. And we also have access to data sets sitting at Treasury, at the Fed system, and so on, which essentially gives us pretty unique perspective and insights what's really going on. So I want to give you kind of an independent perspective of what I think we learn about um, the crisis and what the issues are. So when the crisis started, a lot of attention has been given to this fundamental problem related to securitization, and most of the troubled mortgages were securitized. We're sending in these notorious uh, private label mortgage-backed securities was, well, there is an obvious problem, uh, uh, moral hazard problem in origination. Somebody is originating a loan, but he's not uh, withholding the risk. And this is a problem everybody kind of easily understands. You are originating a loan, you not really carry it on the balance sheet, somebody else is going to buy it. The problem is, do you really have right incentives to screen the borrower, to make the loans, you know, uh, abiding to all proper underwriting standards and so on. And I think this problem is real. It's uh, got a lot of uh, attention initially, but I would not necessarily say that only the banks are, 
are to be blamed for that. So investors were willingly paying the money and they were buying these uh, products. Saying that, they were already at that stage. There is some evidence that investors were not really fully informed what they were buying. In particular, we look on a couple of hundred mortgage-backed security deals recently, and I found there are significant discrepancies between what the prospectus is saying is sitting inside the pool and what the people were actually buying. So not only maybe the investors were um, uh, you know, not very careful and maybe a bit lazy in investigating what they are buying and maybe too trusty of, um, uh, you know, of rating um, uh, um, given by rating agencies and so on, but actually there were already some problems at the origination stage in the sense that you buy something, but you really buy a bit of a cat in the hat, you know, you don't really know fully what it is and documents actually there's significant um, uh, discrepancy in a, in a quite substantial number of deals in terms of what they bought. But this is a problem number one. Uh, I think the second problem we learned, which was not kind of initially widely discussed, is it's not only how these assets were originated and what you bought, but also how they are serviced ex post. And this is uh, uh, some issues uh, Bill alluded to, and there's a lot of empirical evidence that shows this is to be the case. So what I have in mind is when investors buy the assets, they don't really control them. The passive investors, the person who uh, essentially retains controlling rights is the servicer. Who the servicers are, the largest servicers are JP Morgan, Bank of America, uh, big banks in the US. There are some also independent servicers, but the bottom line, they effectively have controlling rights what to do with these assets without having an ownership rights in them. So it's not like that, and it seems this, this, this potential agency conflicts arising from this problem are fairly uh, important. The empirical evidence shows that banks service very differently loans they own the same bank versus the loan, it's service for the others. I mean, for the people like hedge fund or pension fund investors. And these this magnitudes are very, very uh, non-negligible. So, so for example, you could look on likelihood of resuming uh, making payments of a loan that gets uh, seriously delinquent is much higher when the banks owns the loan on the balance sheet. And also there are differences in foreclosure behavior. Maybe the banks are willing to put in foreclosure process. Uh, the, 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 there's some evidence they want to put in foreclosure process loans that are securitized, but don't necessarily finish this foreclosure process very quickly. There's a lot of lack of transparency in this process, and the magnitudes of differences are, are fairly significant. So in other words, that sort of uh, aggravated the foreclosure crisis. Not only we originated a lot of risky assets, but we make problem worse how we are serviced exposed. And I agree with the points Bill made. The fundamental challenge is the, the market for mortgage-backed securities is supposed to be a passive market. There's some pension fund, mutual fund manager, he's supposed to invest in high-graded securities, not much looking in what he's buying, trusting the financial system, and then he's going to, to collect the payments flowing to him every month. But effectively, these assets become almost like a like components, like equity, when a lot of decision has to be made, but investors do not really have an access to an easy system which would allow them to say, how these assets should be handled in the crisis. And I mean, this is a very, very big problem because you end up uh, you know, without essentially uh, owning the assets with no right to say how you'd like them to be controlled. I don't know exactly how to solve these problems. There's some good ideas flowing around, but if we want to bring securitization back in the US, we have to somehow resolve this issue of supervision and control rights of investors, which I think Bill would call the access to court system or some supervision mechanism. And it's a little bit tricky because the whole point of securitization market is diversification of risk. So you really have a very heterogeneous diversified holdings. Otherwise, what's the point of securitization if I'm the only owner of the pool? I want to be a small owner of a given pool to diversify my risk. 
these guys are also both politically, but I think also historically fairly passive. You know, the mutual fund pension fund managers don't think about themselves as going to quarterly meeting of uh, you know uh, uh, holders of a certain mortgage-backed security trust. So there is a need of some institutional setting that's independent from the people who originate and potentially service these assets that allow investors more easy access to essentially supervise and control how these assets are being handled. And I think that's a fundamental thing to sort of restart securitization market if we want to have um, uh, this to happen. And I think there's a really a need of new institutions. Um, uh, for example, Bill has a fairly interesting set of ideas in his book, which I strongly encourage you to read, you know, going a line of independent trustees and so on. And if, I don't know to what extent industry and uh, an investment community would be able to achieve that, but these are potentially um, an interesting thoughts to, to consider. And coming up to the, to the things the Mark was talking about, um, we really have to make a fundamentalist of decision. Do we really want to have securitization and to what extent and what we want to securitize? So Mark, for example, suggested we might want to see more bank balance sheet lending. My only concern with that, and I understand the motivation, is that, well, the banks have FDIC guarantee of the deposits. And if they are very highly levered, and they will actually hold a lot of loans on their balance sheet, we as the taxpayers end up again on the hook in the next crisis. They will be crying, especially the big banks. And knowing how the uh, politics of the FDIC guarantee works, I'm not sure there will be enough money in FDIC fund to cover, you know, to, to essentially make payments for the largest banking institutions when they will be failing because of the bank balance sheet mortgage holdings. Of course, you can alleviate this problem by simply asking the banks to make only very safe loans. I don't know, 50% down payment, then there will be no problem. But then I'm not sure there will be a significant cost to households of such a model. So I would say the bank just loading a lot of lending to banks, it's a little bit tricky because of the FDIC guarantee. And also, I'm also a bit concerned about the competition. You might end up with a kind of a cartel of few banks essentially slicing uh, all the mortgages, having effectively FDIC guarantee, which they would replace Fannie and Freddie, but they would essentially implicitly understood that if something goes, understand that if something goes badly, they will be bailed out in one way or another. So this is a little bit um, not obvious to me that this is necessarily the model would like to follow. On the other hand, securitization has these benefits uh, that you know allows you diversification of risk. It's it's more or less liquid. But then there are these fundamental problems of working out the agency problems, which we learn in this crisis have significant costs. Maybe there's some hybrid model. We won't get there immediately, but you know you could imagine also a lot of bank uh, mortgage lending being done, for example, by real estate investment trusts. They do have some tax benefits. They are transparent, they are liquid, and they are more equity finance precisely. So because of they don't have tax benefits, they have less incentive to lever up. So maybe some hybrid model could potentially uh, play a role here. The last comment I want to make is currently, essentially, we don't have a private lending market. As was said, more than 90% of mortgages are guaranteed by taxpayer. I think it's not only the lack of trust with, between investors and, um, and, um, and uh, banks um, uh, that, that sort of affects the situation. I think government uncertainty plays a tremendous role. Uh, we know from the basic economics that uncertainty about fundamentals can delay investment. There's a lot of uncertainty. You know, if I would be holder of private capital, I would be not very inclined to step in until I really understand what administration is planned to do, because otherwise I can be pretty much burnt in this business. So I think until the government steps out and lets the market you know, work these things out, we won't see much moving forward. I've been on this meeting since last five years, and every time is the same conclusion. We're just kind of in a frozen state. Nothing is happening except, of course, for the closures are uh, you know, working through. We, but, but in terms of bringing back private capital market, I have not seen really much uh, happening yet. Thank you very much.
Well, I've now, I know we've got time for a few questions, and I'll re remind you as we start, please uh, wait to the microphone to get to you so that we can hear you and our online audience can hear you. Uh, I would also say, uh, A, keep it to a question rather than a long statement, and announce your name and affiliation. So uh, we start right over here. Um, Astrid Dorner with Germany's Business Daily Handelsblatt. I would like to hear your view, I heard Bill's view, uh, about the eminent domain discussion, sort of where are we going and what are your views on that? Uh, Astrid, are you asking the... Uh, When you start, it's an eminent domain question. Uh, so there is definitely a, a, a risk of uh, you know of upholding contractual rights of uh, investors, and I think this is uh, you know if it will be really done. Uh, so so let me put it that way. I think there are real frictions potentially in the way the assets are being handled, and if investors cannot get quickly for organized and uh, intervene, there could be potentially an argument made for such a policy intervention, but. When um, you know, because uh, investors are heterogeneous, cannot coordinate in a, in a greater good. Essentially, on their behalf, we're gonna to um, change certain uh, you know contractual rights and so on. And my only concern is, you know, is really the planner, the so-called government benevolent here, and what kind of interest he will really have in mind by doing such an intervention. So I think the risk might be such that they maybe are higher than the potential benefits. So I think this is a very um, you know, tricky kind of question in the sense that you know you could you could you could make a case for such intervention, but I think that potential risks of whether such intervention will be done properly are are very high. And I think we learned from the past interventions. Some of them, are, you know, I was involved in some discussions with um, um, you know uh, uh, with certain policy plans that has been introduced. But always, you know, the, the the initial point is such that you could make a good case for such intervention. But when you get to the um, you know implementation stage when a number of lobbies gets involved and when the, you know, the something that was meant to be very simple become 400 pages document, you know, you start to really worry where you really are improving the, the current situation and making things worse. David, did you want to touch that? Or? Um, I mean, obviously this is a relatively recent conversation uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty about exactly what different people in California are proposing. Um, and so I don't, want to, I don't want to get into the details of that, but I want to make some observations about it, because I think it's a very important situation with respect to some of the issues that Bill was talking about a few moments ago. Um, in my view, democratic societies cannot uh, endure uh, mass foreclosures. Uh, that political process won't allow it to happen, ultimately. <laughs> Uh, and that uh, it really requires a level of, uh, uh, it, it, in order to make it happen in the smooth way that, that an investor sort of thinking in a narrow way might want, uh, really requires a, a court system that is uh, not uh, one that we would recognize here in the United States. Uh, and secondly, that that's a good thing because the strategy of encouraging very rapid, large-scale foreclosures in relationship to the collapse of a property bubble or the collapse of aggregate demand, uh, as Secretary Mellon suggested in 1930, uh, when he said, you know, well, how do we fix the depression, liquidate everything, uh, that strategy uh, produces a downward spiral. Now, the 
and, and, and thirdly, it tends to be destructive in terms of, in terms of transactional and property values transaction by transaction. Now, what's happened in our, in our uh, mortgage markets over the last five years is we have neither done what Bill would like us to do, uh, nor have we done what I would like us to do. Uh, it's kind of hung there. I'm not sure what, what you're supposed to do. Yeah, but no, I mean, my, my solution is to restructure the mortgages so that people can stay in their homes. All right, to recognize losses where they are. Not everybody can stay, because some, mm -hmm. some, are, are, some people just aren't going to make it, right, no matter what you do. Uh, but asking homeowners, any more than asking, for example, people involved in commercial property markets to pay, to pay out into the future, on, uh, on loans that were, on, uh, uh, that were set at bubble prices on houses that will never be worth what those loans are worth is not a viable option. That, that, that is not a viable way to proceed. And yet, kind of by hook or by crook, we're kind of doing that. Now, um, it, the, the discussion about eminent domain tends to create very sharp divisions uh, between homeowner advocates and investor advocates. Uh, at people who may be unified on the question that uh, they have, but that they've both been badly mistreated uh, by the banking system. Right? It also, but it also reflects a failure to be of the, on the part of the, of the overall mortgage finance system to do what Bill was asking it to do a moment or two ago, which is, and, and also, uh, you know, what uh, Tomas was was speaking about earlier which is that there is not an ability of the people who actually have the skin in the game to sit down and see if there are win-win outcomes possible. And so, uh, you, you know, the, the, and a lot of games are being played in relation to things like second liens uh, and the like that are really, uh, you know, by intermediaries. Uh, second liens, the, the fee structures for servicing around foreclosures, um, the... Um, the interactions of these issues with, with, with bank balance sheets, bank financial statements, a lot of games being played here. We wouldn't be having the, uh, we, wouldn't, we, would, we would not be having the eminent domain conversation uh, if it was possible to actually make rational decisions about restructuring mortgage loans to reflect the economic realities of those loans. And in my opinion, that's the key thing that needs to happen and is, and, is, and is long overdue. I'm very pleased, by the way, that the Obama administration, after much, after much, uh, much delay, has recognized that principal write-down is a critical thing that has to happen. The problem is we don't quite seem to have the mechanism in place for, trying to, for figuring out how to do it. There is, by the way, in respect to that, no question that an overall catastrophe has occurred in the housing markets uh, a catastrophe in which all parties, homeowners, banks, and investors, um, are taking the hit and will continue to take the hit, and any rational solution would involve all parties taking the hit. Now, by the way, from the perspective of a free market institution, that shouldn't be anything anyone should be terribly upset about. Everybody kind of came along for the ride. Now, everybody was abused in various ways. Investors were clearly abused, I think, uh, and, and Tomas talked about some of the ways they were a moment or two ago. Uh, I think there's no doubt that homeowners uh, were, uh, in many cases, uh, misrepresented. Uh, you know, and uh, if you think about banks and financial institutions as having owners, uh, those owners have been rather poorly served uh, in, in, in this exercise. 
the idea that any rational solution would involve exempting any party from having to bear some of the cost, I think, is mistaken. And I, and I would also note that I think the taxpayer has been greatly abused in the, the yeah. process Well, the, as well. the public, I mean, the, the, you know, I didn't even get into that. I mean, the, 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 just a word or two about that. Uh, the, the, fa the, the, the catastrophic failure of, uh, of, the, of, the global financial, of the global financial system, starting with that in the U.S., uh, starting in 2008, has cost the world, humanity, something on the order of $60 trillion, according to the Bank of England. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there, there, are, there are plenty of losses to go around. Absolutely. I'll make a, a, a one, final one, comment. Oh, yeah. one, one thing I'd like to add is the fact that the investors should have the right to have a rapid foreclosure or a, a known amount of time until a foreclosure doesn't mean that when someone doesn't pay, they should always want to foreclose. If you look at the commercial space where the investors through the structure of the securitization have the ability to negotiate with the borrowers. When the value of the property goes down, they sit down and they cut a deal. The problem with the securitization and the way it's been handled politically is the government and the courts have been separating the investors from the borrowers and putting the banks in the middle as an intermediary and the banks are conflicted. So the, if you look at Hope for Homeowner and HAMP and, and the, the AG settlements and the, and the things like that, if the AGs had gone and instructed the trustees to act as a fiduciary, then you would have a representative of the investors working with the homeowners and instructing the servicers on how to actually fix the loans. And we would not be having the eminent domain conversation, which is the government going in and literally taking the assets out of the trust and putting a bunch of them in their pockets and saying, have a nice day. The, the, the owners of the assets have to be the one that fixes the asset. And the reality is the guy in the house that's not paying is part of the solution. He's not part of the problem. The problem is that the housing price collapsed and there's a non-recourse loan. It's perfectly rational for that person to default. Now the question is, the guy doesn't want an empty house. The investor doesn't want an empty house. He has to cut a deal. The problem in this country right now is that deal's not getting cut, and it's going years and years and not being cut. And that's why we have houses falling into disrepair and foreclosure numbers going off the charts. And I would add that the economic incentives being created by getting four and five years of free rent by, by defaulting are profound. People are economically rational animals. And if they have a 90% LTV but can get five years of free rent and knowing they're going to get a governmentally mandated deal at the end of that, they should default, even though they have equity in their, in their home. They should rationally default. And the question I have is, why haven't we seen not 4 million defaults and foreclosures as we have in the pipeline now, but 24 million? Well, to maybe try to, to, to answer that question, as was touched upon by all the panelists earlier, uh, talking about investor side of it, uh, you know, I'm of the belief that any society, whether it, you know, any society needs a basic level of trust to function. Uh, and one of the things that concerns me about what Senator Bernardino is, is talking about doing, of course, we don't know all the details yet, is this is focused on current mortgages. And the valuation process seems to be based on the assumption that the value of a borrower's promise to pay is zero. To me, if that's true, then we're in a whole lot more trouble than anything else dealing with them in a domain. If there is simply no, no real desire to, to honor your obligations, uh, which matter during hardship 
when it easier than it is to, than other times. So uh, I think since we've run a little late, we've got time for one more question. But again, I know our panelists are going to stick around for a while. Right over here, Bert. Uh, thank you, Bert Ely, um, a banking consultant. I have a, a, a question that's based on good news, bad news. I'm sorry, uh, bad news, good news, but more bad news. Uh, coming back to your proposal, uh, Mark, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you were envisioning a return to uh, the historic SNL type of uh, structure. And of course, some of us in the room are old enough to remember the SNL crisis. Uh, I would say that Europe has given us uh, some time back a solution to that, which is covered bonds. I'd be interested in what the uh, members of the panel think about covered bonds. And I like your idea of uh, banks holding, or lenders holding uh, uh, the mortgages in portfolio. It makes, among other things, uh, resolution of foreclosure problems easy. But what is going to be the consequence on banks of uh, the capital standards that are being put in, particularly with regard to uh, 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 um, holding residential mortgages, isn't that going to destroy the incentive for banks to hold mortgages in portfolio? Well, you know, it, 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 one of the things that Tomas said really wanted me there to, to reiterate what I think is incredibly important, which all these pieces fit together. I tend to be of the perspective that uh, banks and households are all subject to sort of a Bidigliani-Miller theorem of sort where it doesn't really matter what your debt equity is. The reason that you're having that amount of leverage is tax code. So again, uh, echoing some work I know you've done, Bert, the fact that the wedge for corporate corporations, including banks, between equity and debt funding is about seven or eight percentage points is truly troubling. I mean, to me, the question is not why everybody is so highly leveraged. Why aren't they more leveraged given the incentives? So again, we need to change those incentive system. Um, I don't think we should go back to an SNL-style uh, system for a couple of reasons. I think we should go back to a deposit system. But things I would mention are, a, I think we do need to rethink the role of deposit insurance. The fact today that um, you know your family can be you know two spouses each can get 250, the child gets 250, the dog gets 250. You quickly get to a million dollars of coverage, and that's just at one bank. So essentially, we have a deposit insurance system that's not anymore about the retail investor who can't monitor banks. We have it about large brokered uh, deposits and these such things that can monitor banks. So I do think we need to rethink the bank safety net. So I, I should be clear, the solution is not simply from, take the mortgage from too big to fail Fannie and give it to too big to fail B of A. The solution is to make them both not too big to fail. Um, and again, I think ultimately none of that will be accomplished unless you're willing to impose losses on creditors. Uh, and the only way to, of course, make that credible is to impose losses on creditors. You can't just threaten it. You have to actually do it. Um, but that said, you know, I think also one of the points I made that I think is incredibly important is part of the SNL crisis echoes the 20s and 30s where it was a lack of geographic diversification. Uh, and I think now that some of the advantage of having larger banks is there is geographic diversification. Uh, but that's a different problem that we need in terms of, of sort of too big to fail. But I think the covered bonds should be part of the solution. Uh, I think to me a principle should be, well, I guess I should be the first to say I have no idea what the mortgage market should look like. What I have the ideal of is we should not heavily put our thumb in favor of one solution that crowds out all others. So private market securitization, covered bonds, portfolio holding, you know, are all things that to me make sense. Uh, I'm a little less concerned about making banks have more capital. I'm far more concerned um, about the risk weighting of capital. Uh, you know, for instance, you know, the thing that concerns me about uh, proposals to increase capital is that you increase incentives to hold those with zero weighting, like Greek debt, you know, or Fannie Mae debt. 
Uh, so again, we need to keep in mind, that, you know, I would go back to a far simpler world of just fixed leverage ratios. You hold this much equity, uh, and of course, we don't count things like deferred tax losses as equity and, and these other game playing. So uh, with that, I'll see if any other panelists want to comment, comment on that comment question on the, before uh, we wrap up. On the uh, covered bond, or in German, in Germany, they're called fond briefs, um, and I'm sure I murdered that pronunciation. <laughs> um, what, what it effectively is is a a bucket where the bank puts in some capital, and they keep the assets on a mark-to-market basis, and it's segregated in the event the banks go down. That's all well and good, but it concentrates prepayment risk and it concentrates credit risk. And there's two types of risk in a mortgage, in a, in a mortgage or a homeowner's asset, uh, a, a mortgage that a homeowner has. One is they can prepay at any time or they can choose never to prepay and just pay the scheduled amortization. That creates an enormous amount of duration risk or interest rate optionality. Second, there's credit risk. The fond briefs and the covered bonds concentrate both of those in the financial institutions. The SNL crisis, um, I would argue started when interest rates spiked in the 70s and the banks were mismatched. And they became basically insolvent and the government let them go into other types of assets such as commercial lending and things like that to, you know, make up the money, you know, to go into higher spread assets and it was um, amateur hour at the, uh, at the loan office. And you ended up having a, 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 an obvious mess that looked like it was huge until five years ago. Um, and we got it right. <laughs> then it was not geographically. Then, then, it, was not, then it became a, a blip on a screen. Um, but, but the concept of a covered bond concentrates the, the interest rate risk of a mortgage and the credit risk of a mortgage. And if we as a society don't choose to look at the amount of interest rate risk embedded in the mortgage backs, in the mortgages that we create in this country, and the amount of credit risk, and by that I mean creating a system where when there's a decline in interest rates, it's like everybody gets a lottery win. Well, the, the, the problem is that money comes from somewhere and it comes from the investors. The investors pay a, are paid a premium for this, but it's a systemic risk throughout the economy. Everybody wins, the financial system loses, and there's this systemic shock to the system. <clears throat> the second is the credit risk of mortgages. And if we, we, we used to think that they were virtually risk-free, now we understand that they're not. So the first one can be handled by having, the, the, the interest rate risk can be handled by having either shorter lifetimes where they roll and then there's, there's interest rate risk dumped on the homeowner, or the homeowner can pay a prepayment penalty to calm down the prepayments that, that happen with um, interest rate moves. There's formulas that can do that. It's, it's done in the commercial mortgage market. In the book, I go through how it's done. The second is you can cut down on, on credit risk with two things. One is with something called the down payment, which if you look it up in the dictionary, you can find there is a definition for it. It's not been used or discussed for a long time in this country. Um, but having a 20% down payment works wonders. And the second is something that will make virtually every Democrat and every Republican in this town cringe. It's something called recourse. And if you sign a note for $200,000, um, when you're actually signing it, if you don't think you can pay it, when you read that you're on the hook for that, the last check in a mortgage is when you sign it. And there's nothing wrong with having someone be on the hook for their other assets 
when they agree to when they agree to that. I don't think we should go back and change the rules retroactively, but prospectively, there's nothing wrong with making people responsible. And what we're seeing now is part of the cost of that. In Europe, there's, there's property meltdowns and the like, and you're not seeing the systemic foreclosures, and you're not seeing the catastrophic meltdowns caused by the housing problem. It's caused by other reasons, but... And, it is, it is and I, know, I know my friend over here is, well, go, is going well, to... Uh, well, actually, no. I mean, I think you're pointing out something very important that people need to understand in this discussion, which is that we made a choice as a society yes, some time ago to really emphasize home ownership uh, as a key a key uh, uh, building block in our society. Uh, it, it's, and it, it's appealing both to the right and to the left. It, it, it speaks to what President Bush used to talk about when he talked about the ownership society. Uh, it speaks to, uh, in making it widely, and making home ownership widely available and in making efforts to see to it that low-income families can own homes uh, and to bring, uh, uh, African Americans and Latinos who, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, you could not get a mortgage in Richmond, Virginia, if you were an African American. No matter how much money you had, no matter what your down payment was, uh, the the in bringing those folks in, uh, that's there's a lot of you know there, there's a lot of a, a, a re, it's 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 woven into our society. Now there are societies in Europe uh, that have not made that choice, where home ownership is is rather more unusual, typically more rural, uh, and where uh, middle class and, and middle class and upper middle class people might typically not own a home. Now, w um, we could be that type of society. We would be really different. Uh, the uh, I, I don't see it as a non-viable choice. What I do see as a non-viable choice is the idea that we're going to um, pretend to be that kind of society, but only enforce it against the poor. Well, I, I, I will end saying. I mean, uh, is I made a couple points during our presentation. It's not clear to me that a lot of our subsidies for homeownership actually increase homeownership. Uh, and it's also worth noting a number of other societies, like Canada, for instance, have higher homeownership rates without the amount of subsidies. So again, you can have lots of subsidies. That does not, therefore, mean that those subsidies are effective. Those are, those are two different questions. Uh, you know, I will end and wrap up, because Bill made me think about something that I'll end on, which is uh, if you're going to have a financial system characterized by long-dated assets, your financial system will only be as stable as your monetary policy is good. With that, uh, I want to thank our panelists and thank our audience and welcome you all upstairs to, to lunch. <laughs>